Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. Joke is, however, defined broadly to mean one unit of comedy, be it a sketch, a stand-up story, or in the case of this episode, a scene. See, our guest is Liz Feldman, a, a comedy writer who has been working since getting a job on all that while still in her teens, and has since worked on a number of sitcoms and award shows. Uh, most recently, she is the creator and showrunner of Dead to Me, Netflix's hit dramedy, or as they call it, dramedy. Whatever you call it, it, it is a comedy that doesn't necessarily care about any specific rules of what a comedy needs to be. Sometimes it's a straight-up sitcom, sometimes it's a small drama, other times it's high suspense, other times it's a borderline melodramatic mystery. That said, when it's funny, it is funny, thanks in no small part by two seriously incredible performances from leads Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini. Both are nominated for an Emmy this year, as is the show. So here is the moment where I usually throw to the clip, but, but we want to do something different this time. Dead to Me just has so many twists and unexpected plot turns that, that a clip like the one we're going to play wouldn't really work out of context. It comes at the top of Season 2, Episode 2, so first we felt we needed to lightly spoil some of the stuff that happened in Season 1. Note, we, we don't spoil anything that happens after this scene. So, here is Liz Feldman. I am here with Liz Feldman. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So usually we start these interviews w with the clip, but I would love for this interview to make sense for people who have not seen the show as well as people who have. I okay. also thought the idea I had was fun. So um, as quickly as possible, <laughs> um, I'll time you. Oh, God. Can you summarize the plot of the series up until the end of season two, episode one? So right up until oh, the clip we're about the play. <laughs> um oh, yeah how much time do i have uh let's say 90 seconds oh jesus okay 
Here we go. But also, do you. Do, it's, okay, it's your, okay. It's your show. You can do whatever you want. But, oh, thank you uh, so much. <laughs> okay. So, Dan to Me is about a widow named Jen whose husband died in a hit and run very suddenly, unexpectedly, a crime which when we meet her is yet to be solved. She reluctantly goes to a grief group where she meets a woman named Judy who has also lost her fiance. Only as we come to find out in the pilot, her fiance did not die. He just broke up with her. And at first it seems like Judy is perhaps someone not to be trusted. And however, by this point, Jen and Judy have become really good friends. And they sort of come back together when Judy tearfully explains in grief group that, you know, the truth is that, yes, he, Steve is not dead. He did just break up with her. And he did so after she had her fifth miscarriage. And she, too, is in quite a bit of grief. Uh, it's clear by the end of the pilot. And, uh, you know, it is making her act in some questionable ways, something that Jen can relate to. Jen even offers her a, a temporary place to stay. Her husband, uh, who's now dead, was a musician. She has a guest house, which was his music studio. Uh, Judy's welcome to stay there. And... As Judy goes to her storage unit to gather some stuff to move in, um, we see that she has a car with a dent in the front bumper. And we learn at the end of the pilot that Judy is the person who was driving the car that hit Jen's husband and killed him. So basically what proceeds is, uh, you know, this uh, cat and mouse kind of friendship, but a very true bond that forms between these two women. So the, the long story short is that Steve is a, a not a savory character and that he was in the car with Judy that hit Ted and that he is the person who told Judy to drive away. But eventually <laughs> the truth comes out and it's a comedy. Anyway, um, <laughs> the long story, it's, it's really hard to sum up, quite frankly, because it's there's I, a lot of plot. But you're, but doing, the, you're doing a great job. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, I'm literally sweating. I, I'm... <laughs> I'm taking off my sweatshirt just to finish the first season, which is that, you know, Judy um, finally confesses and lets her know that, you know, she is the person, you know, responsible for Ted's death. And Jen is obviously incredibly shocked to hear this and, you know, uh, basically like shuns Judy and like tells her to go die. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Judy, she does a few things like turn Steve in for money laundering and then drain his bank account, which she shared mm -hmm. with him. She ends up giving that money to Jen. And while she's about to take her own life, uh, Steve shows up, you know, coming after Judy, very upset with her. And one thing leads to another. And Steve ends up dead in Jen's pool. And it's a comedy. End of season one. <laughs> yes. So season two opens up and... Let's, we're, we're almost at the moment we're about to play. Oh, God. Okay. So it is the morning after the night we left them in the season one finale, and they have done something which we do not know with mm -hmm. the body. And then their doorbell rings, and uh, there is a man at the door who looks exactly like Steve, and Jen is in complete shock. And then the Netflix, boom, boom. Yes. Next episode plays. Hey. Jen, this is Steve's brother. 
Steve has a twin brother? He does. You do? Steve has an identical twin brother. But they're not, they're not actually identical. identical. Oh. We're semi-identical. Semi-identical. Oh, you're semi-identical. Yeah, so two sperm, one egg, like a double yolk, only the sperm is the yolk. Does that make sense? Am I dead? Did I die? Well, I don't think so. I mean, unless we're all dead. <laughs> Nobody's dead. No, we're not. Nobody's dead. Okay. Are you all right? <laughs> Thank you for doing that. So before we get to this scene, there's obviously like so many moments of plotting and decisions made that led up to this exact moment. So yes. I want to sort of go through those step by step. But first, sort of how in general are seasons plotted? So the season, um, in the first season was an extension of the pitch that I had done to Netflix which helped me sell the show. So I actually had to come up with the first season before, you know, I, I ever even knew I was going to get to make the show. You know, I knew that I wanted it to be, you know, a little twisty and turny. I wanted there to be uh, cliffhangers and, but it wasn't really until I, I got in the room with the writers of season one who were so incredible where we really found the show. And it's such a gift. So, you know, I had lots of ideas of what we were going to do in season one. And we did, I would say, probably like 60 or 75% of them, but they were just made so much better um, by our writers. And, you know, for example, like I did not intend for the season to end with Steve floating dead in a pool. That was, that mm -hmm. was not my original ending. But Abe Sylvia, one of my writers, was like, I think I know what needs to happen here. And, you know, the great thing about being in a writer's room is when something happens, like a like an idea like that, there's just such a palpable energy that takes over. Yeah. Can you talk about what the conversations were like? Were there dissenting views? Like, was it a debate? Like, what <laughs> what was it like in the room when a person says that beyond eventually coalescing to be like what that means? But what are conversations like that like? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a good question, because I probably was the person who pushed back the most. You know, we had we had determined at some point early on in, in season one, in that writer's room, that this was, you know, very much a show about two women who inadvertently destroy the thing in the other person's life that is holding them back from being the best versions of themselves. Mm. And in this case, the thing that is holding them both back, you know, were the men in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, that isn't something I necessarily, you know, uh, planned when, when I was coming up with the show. But I remember uh, one of our writers, Kate Robin, came in and she's like, I think this is what the show is really about. And it's like amazing when you can have all <laughs> yeah. these ideas about your own thing and somebody comes in and puts it into perspective so quickly and you're like, oh, yeah, no, that is what this is about. And so once we sort of figured that out, Abe pretty quickly came up with the idea of like, no, it has to sort of be, you know, a little bit of quid pro quo there. You know, it has to mm -hmm. there's sort of a strangers on the train kind of feeling that feels like necessary and sort of satisfying and when he first said that Steve should be dead and that Jen should kill him, I really resisted because I didn't want Jen to be thought of as a murderer. I didn't want her to be thought of as a as a bad person. I think it's great, mm -hmm. you know, that everybody's flawed, but I that felt maybe like, oh God, that's too far. But I also couldn't resist sort of the irony of it and 
the break even of it, you know, and what it could mean for a season two. It is a very, you know, plot driven show as, as, as well as a character driven show and plot has to come from somewhere. And it, it was a great launching point for a second season. And I, I, I could see that. I think I was daunted by it because mm-hmm. it, it brought it into an entirely different <laughs> stratosphere, yeah. you know, of genre, really. And, you know, I think I was nervous that I wasn't going to be able to pay it off. At, can, um, I'm not sure if you are, are able to do this, but can you say either what you thought was going to happen to <laughs> Steve in season two or just like what he was going to sort of continue to represent in the show? Well, honestly, I didn't see Steve as a huge character. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. He was almost sort of like an afterthought, like, you know, a, a very tertiary character at best. And then he started to figure more heavily into the story. And it was it was actually Abe Sylvia again, who was like, I think he was in the car with Judy that mm. night, you know, and we started to build this person and this dynamic, you know, between he and Judy that, you know, really explained how Judy got herself into this mess. And it all started to make sense. I think initially I wanted to tell a story about a woman who made a terrible mistake and was trying to make up for it. And I think as, again, you get into a writer's room and like people were like, well, wouldn't it be more interesting if, you know, if it was more nuanced than that, if there was more going on and and the, the, of course the answer was yes, it's totally more interesting. So, so at this point in, in our timeline, Ben doesn't exist. He, he truly was not a character when he first thought of the show. Even Steve barely was a character. Right. So, but then, so there is no Ben. Walk me through what happens next. <laughs> so the, the season, uh, season one came out. And I think much to really everyone's surprise, it, 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 it seemed to connect, you know, and mm-hmm. people, people watched it. And, and really liked it. And James Marsden emailed me out of the blue, just, you know, maybe like a couple of weeks after the show premiered and wrote me the most incredible note, you know, being thankful and kind and saying how much he loved working on the show and asking me why he was up late at night Googling, could a man survive a traumatic brain injury and drowning? And he's sort of kidding, obviously, you know, in the email. And then he was like, you know, but seriously, like, if there was any way, you know, to bring Steve back, like, I would love to do it because it was so fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And and we really did have a great time working together. And, you know, he has such a great rapport with Christina and Linda. And I, I never even considered that he would be available for a season two when, you know, just logistically when we when we signed him on for season one, you know, it was a one-year contract, you know, and you just assume like, this is a very busy guy, you know, we're just lucky to have him for this time and we'll make the most of that. And so the fact that he was interested in coming back was kind of irresistible. And Mm -hmm. I immediately just started thinking and churning some ideas. And I sat down with Kelly Hutchinson, who's one of my best friends and a writer on the show. And I told her about the email and we just looked at each other. And then at the same time, we were like, twins? <laughs> and it made us laugh so, you know, so hard for all the reasons, you know, because yeah. it's because it's preposterous, because it's dumb, you know, and also because it's sort of delightful. Like sometimes when something is so obvious and such a trope, I don't know, like it just made us like a little bit giddy. Mm-hmm. Um because it it represented such a challenge, like could we bring on 
a, tw- a twin, obviously played by James Marsden, and not just be like, you know, canceled immediately. You yeah, know, yeah. like it's it's it, it just was like it, it was like a sort of started as like almost like a joke pitch, you know, mm-hmm. and the more I thought about it the story kind of unfolded pretty quickly in my mind. Like I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like he, he could be, you know, sort of the lesser twin, you know, the, the twin that like got less nutrients in the womb, you know, and Mm -hmm. then, you know, the, the twin that was born with some sort of congenital, you know, health issue. And so he was always sort of the weaker one and Steve got to, you know, be the strong one and the star and, you know, what kind of person would this guy be if Steve was his brother and what kind of person would be interesting to bring into the lives of Jen and Judy at this point? And the idea that Jen, you know, would have to be face to face with Ben, this guy who literally has yeah. the face of the man she killed, like, it was just like, really kind of textured and interesting. And it was all right there. Like, it was yeah. like, you know, dramatic irony is definitely the main thing we rely on and in a lot of our dynamics on the show. And, and I mean, that is a pure, pure irony right there. So I want to talk a little bit about twists at this, at this moment, your show has, has, has many, but this is sort of one of the, the bigger swings as you, as you noted, you, you know, you, you say how you've said you're sort of the barometer of when a twist feels earned. Can you talk about why this one felt, earned or how you felt you were able to earn it by what would happen afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think this was one we had to earn once we introduced it, you know, and so much of that credit is due to James because, you know, it's him on that screen. You know, we can write any story, we can give him fun dialogue, but he's the person that went on camera and embodied this entirely different person. It's his mannerisms. It's his vulnerability. It's his dorkiness, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. sold that character. We tried to make Ben a very three-dimensional human being in a way that Steve wasn't, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we dug, pretty deeply into like why this guy is the way he is, how he could turn out to be a nice guy, like how he could turn out to have the heart that he has, but, you know, come from the same people that Steve did. And I think all credit is definitely, you know, due to James. He's Mm -hmm. the one who earned it. Can you think of a twist that was pitched that you felt like, oh, we can't pull that off? (laughs) Oh, boy. You know what? No, I can't. Because usually in the writer's room, when someone says, okay, this is crazy before they pitch something, very often we try to make that thing work because it's, you know, I think that's sort of the joy of the show is that is, is bringing in these crazy twists and then having to earn them. Usually the craziest ones are the ones that we do. Yeah. I imagine if you talk to some other writers, their their interest in twists will be sort of really formal. Like they'll think of twists as an interesting plot device or an interesting way to sort of explore different story structures and pacing or whatever. But, you know, it seems like for you, the twists are directly connected to you as a sort of character driven writer. So sort of in a form follows function way, how are the twists important to the, the themes of the show you're trying to explore with these characters? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like the barometer for for the twists on the show is, do you believe this character would really do this? You know, is this justified? You know, it's not like we don't come up with the twist and then try to reverse engineer it, Mm -hmm. you know, and then 
find some sort of random way for it to be okay, you know, for that character to do that. You know, the best twists on the show are really derived from something this ordinary person would do in this extraordinary circumstance. Like, you know, sometimes it's like there's too many twists and then we sort mm-hmm. of have to pare it down <laughs> because also like they're really fun to think of. But to me, the, the most successful twists or the, you know, the funnest ones are the ones where you're like, yeah, that character would totally do that. And you, you know, you're, you're almost like trying not to laugh at the terrible choice that that person is making. Got it. The show has twists at the end of an episode, I guess, or cliffhangers. But a cliffhanger is interesting in the context of a streaming show in so much as a cliffhanger both propels an episode forward, but it is also something that like affirms episodic natures of shows. Do you know what I mean? Like it's you can have cliffhangers if you're saying, oh, this is a four hour movie or whatever. Um, How do you feel about that part of it of using twists and its relationship to you being essentially a person creating TV episodes? Well, I mean, you know, I think. I know for me as a TV viewer, I, I enjoy propulsion, you know, Mm -hmm. like I love the feeling of like, you want to see what's next. You have to sort of know what happens. And it's a great challenge as a writer, you know, to have to come up with those. And also it is almost always very helpful in terms of how you're going to start your next episode. You know, mm-hmm. and, and beginnings and endings are really hard, you know, yeah. so so it's, you know, it's it's both like sort of challenging and and very helpful at the same time. There there are some twists on the show that are like, oh, come on, like you add one wrinkle that makes it like sort of one step forward for your characters and one step back. Mm-hmm. But this twist felt like more of a like, oh, fuck you. Like there, there's <laughs> like a there's like a camp quality to it. Yeah, <laughs> there's. <laughs> Like, there are character and story reasons, but it also just felt like you're trying to communicate to something to the audience. You know, what do you feel like it is communicating or just sort of in general, how are twists connected to the comedy of the show? Yeah, I mean, the this twist, you know, is, is I think, um, a propellant of the comedy on the show. I think, you know, once once we came up with the idea of bringing Ben in, I could immediately see that you know i mean like that is definitely a a comic twist there's a there is a sense of humor to it and you know i think that there was there was some question coming out of season one because you know it was the it was the first you know time anybody's watching the show and you know the tone is so um genre non-conforming if you Mm -hmm. will you know like it is many things at once and i think there's something about this particular moment of bringing in the twin brother of the guy that died that tells you we are in on the joke yeah you know and i and i really wanted to communicate that so let's talk about this scene on on a sort of boring technical level how are scenes written on the show how are you using the room to literally write dialogue well when we're you know when we're sort of fine breaking uh the story which you know means like we've already come up with you know the general storyline of every episode and then we sort of go back and you know really talk about what the content is of each scene in each episode when we were this was the second episode and when we were you know breaking the this particular scene a lot of times like we all kind of improvise together Mm. in the room you know um there are you know several performers in the room and you know we all kind of just sort of like riff on like what 
what this could be. And, you know, so the whole idea of the, of the semi-identical twin, that was just, you know, something somebody pitched in the room. And it was so dumb that it just made us all laugh. Like, like, and it is a real thing. And, um, leaning into the, uh, subtext of what's going on, you know, that they obviously know that there is a, a, a dead man, you know, somewhere in that house. And here's, uh, you know, his twin brother showing up to look for him. So we'll definitely, you know, riff dialogue in the room, you know, which goes into the notes. And then, you know, the writer of this episode, who is uh, Liz Benjamin, you know, she, she, you know, does her version of it. And then I take a pass at the, at the script as well. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Okay, what is the sort of goal of the scene first? Like, okay, what is, what do we want to tell people about Ben in this one moment? And also, what do we want to, tell the audience about Jen and Judy in this moment? Are you just sort of discussing that as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, we know this is your first time meeting Ben. And we wanted the audience to get immediately that this is a different person mm-hmm. than Steve. You know, I mean, obviously, there's the mislead at the very end of uh, episode one. But, you know, as soon as he starts sort of really talking, we wanted you to know right away, like, oh, this is like, this guy's a dork, basically, yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, so, you know, we really leaned into, you know, his sort of just like very kind, you know, open-hearted, you know, uh, uh, sort of dorkiness. And, you know, we also, you know, wanted you to feel Jen's shock of like, is she looking at a ghost? Like, what's mm-hmm. happening? And, I, you know, this scene you know, I, I'm sure plays one way when you're only listening to it, but when you watch it, like the looks on Linda and Christina's faces are so priceless. And it was one of those scenes when we were shooting it that it just made us laugh every take. You know, there was like this could have I could have used so many different versions, you know, of, of their performance. But like, you know, the goal was we wanted Jen to pass out. You know, we want we mm-hmm. wanted this moment to like shock her to a place of, you know, of falling on the floor. It's interesting as you talk about it, because that does, though you didn't mention the specific jokes, you sort of hit all the beats of it, which was sort of like, how's a way you immediately get that this guy's a dork, which is they go, who the fuck is Ben? And then he goes, I'm the fuck is Ben, Uh which is like such a, I'm nice. Like, I'll use your language. I don't mind that he's cursed. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, that's the only time he ever really curses on the show. It's really not his language. You know, he's a guy who says frig, you know, not <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about maybe something specific in any of their performances of like what they brought, if any of the dialogue was improvised, or even just sort of like the performance of it was changed by what they brought to it? This scene in particular, um, they did adhere to the script, but almost you know, every other scene has some, you know, little riff that is improv. They're all really good at that. And, you know, Christina and Linda specifically have such an amazing uh, rapport and are able to improv in their characters so effortlessly that very often that stuff turns out to be the funniest stuff mm-hmm. um, and often stays into the final cut. Um, I mean, I think what always really delights me is that we present a ridiculous situation to these actors, you know, that is so heightened, you know, and it's, 
in its setup, but they are so grounded in their delivery. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the only way that, you know, this show works is that they have to feel that what is going on in front of them is so real, you know, and is so uh, grounded in fear and guilt and all of, you know, the, the horrible feelings that come with um, killing a man and hiding his body in a freezer in a garage <laughs> that, you know, I think that is what they bring to it. You know, they, they take our very heightened words and situations and make them feel real. And that is like, that is their gift. Reading about this show and how it's created and the fact that they are actors at a level where they're they're offer only, which means you sort of can audition them and you didn't even audition them together. And it, it is a classic Hollywood of like, ultimately, like there is luck involved no matter how hard you can work. Can you think about, I want to give you an opportunity to sort of fawn over them more because they are so incredible on it, of maybe what you expected and then what you were surprised by, by seeing them perform or just any specific thing of like, I did my best, but this is the reason the show is this is them. Yeah, I mean, it's been just beyond my wildest, you know, aspirations for what this could be. You know, you, you do you do have to just cast the show blindly. The, not only had I never seen Christina or Linda or James read these roles, but Christina and Linda had never met each other. Yeah. And, you know, that is like, you know, that's quite a leap to take, you know, and I was obviously a fan of both of their work, like, you know, um, you know, Christina, I've been a fan of for so long. And, you know, but with Linda, like, I, I was familiar with her work, but I really knew her from Bloodline. Mm -hmm. And I thought of her uh, primarily as a dramatic actress. And it wasn't till I sat down with her and met her in person that I realized how funny she was just, you know, as a person. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we first uh, had our, you know, lunch where where Christina and Linda met, it, it was pretty instantaneous, you know, that they had this just sort of simpatico connection. And, you know, so you're like, okay, great. They get along. That's great. That's just one tiny piece of it. You know, then you're just holding your breath a little bit, you know, when we start shooting. But as much as I knew they were both so talented, they absolutely blew me away because, First of all, you know, I knew that Christina was funny and, you know, I obviously she has comedy chops, but I, I really did not know the depth of her talent as a dramatic actress. Mm-hmm. When, when she really started digging into those scenes, we were all, I mean, there was just a feeling on set of like, holy shit, like, like she is, she is as real as they come. Like this is, this is like next level. Yeah. And the same, you know, with Linda, like with Linda, I I did sort of know that she was going to be good at that more vulnerable, you know, emotional stuff. But I had no idea that she was going to be as funny and surprising and what we call sort of shape shifty, you Mm -hmm. know, as, as she is. And, you know, she can turn on a dime, you know, she, it's, it's an incredible, they're both sort of like incredible athletes in that way. Yeah. And, and I think the same is true for James. Like I, I knew that, that he was charming and delightful and like, you know, I'd seen him be funny before, but, you know, especially in season two, you know, I didn't know if he was going to be able to do the more, you know, vulnerable stuff, you know, where mm-hmm. we're asking him to break down and he, he did it so effortlessly. Like I, 
you know, it's, it's, this show is, is what it is because of these actors, you know, you can write anything you want on a page, but it's, it's just words on a page, you know, until, until people bring it to life. And, um, I just feel so extraordinarily lucky because there's an alchemy there that is luck. Yeah. You know, you can't, you, you can't even search for it. You know, it's, it's just, it is, or it isn't. And somehow, somehow it is. This is, this is one of the the funnier scenes of the season, or at least one of the more sort of purely comedic scenes, you know, in in general, what is comedy's function in the show or how do you feel like comedy functions in the show? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm always sort of looking for a balance, you know, of tone and I try to never force it Mm -hmm. even, even so far as like when I was pitching the show, I, I didn't even call it a comedy because I knew mm. that I wanted it to have these other elements and I didn't want to kind of overpromise, you know, I didn't want them to think they were getting like Laverne and Shirley. I, sure. I, I wanted them to know that I was going for, you know, drama and, and mystery and thriller and all of the genres. Um, but I will say that, you know, where the comedy lives, it lives on purpose as a way of sort of cutting through some of the heaviness. And it is a reflection sort of, of of the way that that I and I think many of uh, the writers in the room sort of look at life and approach mm-hmm. life. Like when things are really heavy, you know, I I cannot help but look for the one funny thing. Like even at a funeral, you know, I'll just fixate on the rabbi's sneakers <laughs> and you know like it's yeah. i just it's just my way of coping it's a form of resilience i think in getting through incredibly traumatic situations and you know so so that is really the the function of comedy on this show is that it's it, first of all the, the two characters jen and judy are funny you know yeah. they're just they're funny women and their sense of humor that they share is is you know a real uh is basically the foundation of their friendship yeah. I try not to like force or lead with the comedy. I lead with what would emotionally be very true for each character in any given moment. And because the way that they both look at the world is funny, you know, the comedy just sort of flows naturally from there. We'll be right back with more Liz Feldman. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Calling all female runners, it's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. 
The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back with Liz Feldman. So before I ask the next question, I felt like it'd be useful for the listeners to sort of have the context of your career arc. Um, I hate to make you do this again. I'm going to have you do as quickly as possible. Oh, God. Uh, but again, take your time, do your best. You know, you started broadly entertainment as a teenager, and your arc is so unusual and specific. I was wondering if you could sort of just share sort of greatest hits timeline <laughs> from you as a teenager up until the point where you're sort of meeting and coming up with Dead to Me. Whew. Okay. Well, it's been a while. Great. So I started uh, as a stand-up when I was 16 and pretty quickly, weirdly started writing jokes for other kids who did comedy. Yeah. And about a month after I graduated from high school, I got my first sort of real job, which was as a writer and a performer on all that which was on Nickelodeon. It was a sketch comedy show. Uh, you know, Keenan yeah. was on it. And and that was in 1995. After that, I went to college, graduated with a BS in TV, which just sort of feels like a fun footnote, mm -hmm. and moved out to LA, did the Groundlings for five and a half years, uh, performed, you know, every week in the Sunday company, and, you know, was getting gigs here and there as an actress and decided pretty quickly that um, I would rather be the person in, in control and mm -hmm. not be waiting for the part to be given to me. And so I, I, I turned back to writing and started writing full-time. My first gig being a, a, a strange fit for me, Blue Collar TV, which was Jeff Foxworthy and, <laughs> yes. um, and Larry the Cable Guy. You know, I'm a, I'm a gay Jew from Brooklyn, maybe not the, the most obvious writer but, uh, for them, but it, it worked. And from there, I got a job working for Ellen DeGeneres on her talk show. And she um, ended up producing my first show, which was on NBC called One Big Happy, which was short-lived, but I'm very proud of. It. There was a lesbian lead character played by Alicia Cuthbert, and it was the first show uh, of its kind since Ellen's show had been canceled about, uh, you know, something like 18 years prior to that. So from that, I, you know... Worked on lots of random shows and then uh, decided to uh, take a meeting where two producers were looking for a show for two female leads. It was a very dark time in my life. I had just turned 40. And on the day I turned 40, my cousin died unexpectedly of a heart attack. At the same time, I was, uh, I was trying to get pregnant for like the fifth year in a row and having a difficult time at that. And the day after... My 40th birthday, my best friend told me she was pregnant and went to New York for my cousin's funeral. The day after that, my other best friend told me she was pregnant. The day after that, I found out that I was not. So I then go to this pitch meeting being told, you don't need to have any ideas. You know, they have a bunch of ideas. I show up. They're like, we're sick of our ideas. Do you have any? And I did not. And <laughs> like, I truly did not. 
And I just sort of started stalling. And I think because of the dark place that I was in, I sort of very randomly picked out of the ether this idea where, you know, one woman is a widow and she goes to a grief group and meets this other gal who uh, is there. Only her guy didn't die. He just broke up with her. Um, I kind of spit that out at this meeting. I have kind of no idea where it came from. And uh, the rest is dead to me. Got it. Thank you so much. That was great. Again, A plus. Um, <laughs> so the the first question I sort of wanted to ask, which was, at whatever moment you were, you most considered yourself a comedian, or you you felt you were like, I'm a real comedy person, be it when you're doing stand up or Groundlings, you know, the type of person. I, my, my first thought was sort of, what would that person think of a show like Dead to Me? In general, how do you feel about it being in a comedy category in Emmys? You know, what do you feel like that says about what comedy is? You know, I think because I started so young and I had been doing it for so long, at a certain point, I just was interested in stretching the boundary of what comedy could be, mm. you know? And, you know, I, I've I've gotten to write jokes, you know, for some great people. And I, I've done many, like, Academy Awards and writing those kind of jokes. And I mean, I've probably written thousands of jokes in my life. And, and that's it's amazing. And I, I do love it. But, you know, at a certain point, I wanted to see what would happen if I could really tell a story that was about something. And I think as I, you know, sort of mature as as even a an audience member, mm. you know, sometimes shows that are just comedy, 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 like I, I just can't quite sink my teeth into them anymore. You know, I'm I'm sort of looking for more meaning in, in what I watch, you know, maybe because my time is more limited and I'm just sort of interested in being moved to think or feel something. And I wanted to see if I could do that. I think I, I, I was, I was hoping that I could take my sort of comedy background and use that as a, a foundation to try to say something important, you know, to try to express something real that, that I feel and that, I hoped would maybe connect with other people and make them feel sort of less alone in their feelings. So it's hard to know exactly what what my old comedy self <laughs> yeah. you know, would say, but I do think that part of me has always wanted to stretch in that way. Mm. I, I, I've always thought of even my multi-camera sitcom, One Big Happy, was very twisty-turny and probably too much so for a 21-and-a-half-minute network show. I yeah. was already sort of experimenting with sort of big, you know, crazy <laughs> reveals. And, you know, I'm just like really grateful that there exists a place like Netflix to do a show like this that doesn't try to corner me into one genre. You've talked about when you're working on the show, eventually realizing that Jen and Judy felt like different sides of you. Mm -hmm. As the show has went on and more hands have touched it, how... Has your relationship to them evolved? Do you still feel that way? I do. I mean, I do still feel that way. I really can pretty easily relate to both of them. I think in mm. some ways they're kind of more like avatars than they are real expressions of like who I am on a day-to-day -day basis. They're almost more sometimes who I wish I was, you know? I don't express anger in the way that Jen does. I don't lash out and I don't rage and you know it feels obviously like in some time you know sometimes with that character it's obviously unhealthy but it also god it seems like it would be so satisfying yeah. um and with Judy like she is just like a, a walking beating heart though she is flawed and makes mistakes she is a good person 
you know, who really leads with love. And I think at my best, I would hope, you know, to be described in a similar way, but there's no way that I could be as selfless and good and almost to the point of martyrdom that she can be. And I think, you know, as as the show has progressed and as we've, you know, had writers coming in and out, like Jen's righteousness has definitely grown with, you know, the perspective of new writers. There were writers last season that really pushed me to, you know, bring out sort of more of her toxicity and sort of selfishness at times, which only means that, you know, she will have to go a little bit further to redeem herself, which hopefully she does. And it's always really interesting when a new writer comes in and sort of projects their image of the character, you know, what what they see and what they relate to. And, you know, I think that, that that's why TV characters are kind of more rich than real life people, because they are amalgams of, of more than just one paradigm. They yeah. are a child in a way of multiple parents. Especially if you if you sort of look at both seasons, there's part of the show that feels like a romantic comedy, you know, in so much as these characters are falling in love, but it, you know, it is a friendship. So I, I sort of have two questions, which is sort of what is your hope for that or sort of where does that come from? And and I guess the sort of bigger question is, in so much as it these people are sort of different sides of you, what does it mean for different sides of you to fall in love with each other? <laughs> That's really funny. Nobody's ever put it like that. Well, you know, first of all, when I was coming up with the characters, I had no concept that they were anything like of me. I, mm -hmm. I really, I really thought for the first time I was writing a show about other people. Up until that point, I had always sort of made a version of myself the lead character of anything I was doing. And, you know, insofar that I would call them Liz or Lizzie or, you know, some mm -hmm. iteration of my name. So this time I was like, I'm really doing something different here. I am I'm really stretching and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, making these two characters that are nothing like me. And then about halfway through writing the pilot, I was like, oh, they're both me. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so in terms of like, you know, what, what I would call kind of the romance of their friendship, which you hit upon, like, I do think that with especially female friendships, there is an intimacy that, that can be there that sort of has a shade of romance to it because it is so close, mm. you know, and because it is two people really giving their full selves to each other. But I think that obviously it is a romance without any kind of you know, sort of sexual connotation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think if you speak to any woman who has really close friends, like I, I think that that they will relate to that. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of it, you know, of them sort of falling in love with each other. You know, I, I've never thought about that in terms of like <laughs> reconciling, like, you know, my duality. Yeah. Um, Self-love is is a good thing. And it's something I'm constantly working on. But um, I don't know that that this particular, you know, relationship is an expression of my own feelings for myself. Got it. That's okay. You know, when I talk to showrunners, especially ones who started as stand-up comedians, which is a very on-your-own gig, I, I'm interested how they feel and approach being a boss. I'm particularly interested right now when you're seeing a lot of reckoning with bosses in Hollywood generally. You know, how do you feel about being a boss right now? How has that evolved? And how do you hope the show reflects what you hope for yourself as a boss? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's it's... It's interesting. I'm not I'm not a solo kind of person. And I think that's ultimately probably why I moved away from stand up and into, mm -hmm. you know, more to sort of group writing. I'm a people person. And 
I always found stand-up to be sort of a lonely endeavor. And when I started writing in, in rooms, you know, many years ago, I often almost like put myself in my boss's shoes. And, and, you know, I think maybe because I, it was an aspiration that I had, you know, to be, to be a showrunner and to be a head writer, you know, I had good and not so good experiences, you know, with bosses and especially as a woman, multiple jobs, I mean, actually my first couple of jobs as a, as a writer in a room, I was the only woman. And especially with my first job, uh, which I mentioned earlier, I definitely experienced quite a bit of sexual harassment mm. and so much so. And I didn't include this in my little summary because it didn't seem like, you know, there was context for it, but yeah. it was a very negative experience. Uh, you know, being the only woman in a room at 18, having just graduated from high school, you know, and being targeted by my boss, it was a very confusing situation. I was very young and naive and I didn't really even understand what was going on until two women who I worked with who were older than me and, you know, I think they were like maybe like production coordinators or something like that on the show. They actually pulled me aside and said, you know, we are concerned for you. We think he's targeting you. And I am moved in many ways by that experience. I'm informed by that experience on both sides in that I knew I wanted to be a boss that never made anyone who worked for me feel like that man made me feel. Hmm. And I also wanted to be somebody who looked out for the people who worked with me, you know, like those two women do, they were heroes, you know, to me. Mm -hmm. And so as I sort of learned, you know, good and bad from, from future bosses, you know, I really consider it a privilege, you know, to be a boss. And, and it is definitely a precarious moment to be in charge right now. We are in a, in a very, you know, sort of heightened and aware in a good way, you know, time where people are very tuned into toxicity. Mm -hmm. you know, and tuned into uh, unfair treatment. So I'm extremely mindful. And I think I always have been of, of leading with kindness and not exploiting my position of, of power to make anyone feel, you know, smaller than me. Mm. And do you feel like the product of the show is a reflection of the workplace you've created? I mean, I, I think so, maybe. I never thought of it like that. But I mean, I, I also, you know, work really closely with Christina and Linda because I know what we're asking them to do is really hard. Yeah. You know, in, in any given moment, they're, you know, supposed to be loose and fun and light, and then they're crying hysterically. And so I really do try to create an environment, you know, on set, um, you know, that allows them to be vulnerable and feel safe, you know, to open up in that way. And, you know, it is a very female-led show. I'm the showrunner. All of our directors are women. 90% of our writers are women. Our producers are women. There is a consciousness that comes with that. And I think pretty early on, season one, Christina was like trying to make sense of this new feeling she was having working on the show. <laughs> and I think the feeling was that she felt safe and that she felt seen. And she realized that she had never worked on a anything that was really run by women. And the same with Linda, you know, they, it was such a new experience for both of them. So I think hopefully, like, if if there's a warm feeling that you that you get, or, or something, you know, maybe that's, yeah. that's because of the environment that I try to create. 
in some interviews, you've described Dead to Me as a show for women and an ode to women. You say, if there are men who like the show, that's great. But ultimately, you made the show for women. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, generally when Hollywood wants to make a show for women, to them, it means they put female characters in a show that is inherently male. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same point of view, but now there's women in that same point of view. Right. What What does a show for women mean to you? How is the value system of what you're creating different? I think because I come from network television, which is definitely male skewing, um, I was just ready to not worry about pleasing men with the yeah. show. You know, it's not that I don't want men, you know, to watch the show. Of course I do. I want I want anybody who, you know, wants to be entertained and have a little bit of escape and maybe feel something to watch the show, for sure. But I think I just became so tired of the same kind of prescriptions for what makes a show, you know, sellable and watchable. You know, when you create a show for network television, the man has to be essentially infallible. Mm. There has to be a male kind of hero on the show. Mm. You know, I mean, at least, listen, this is a few years ago, so maybe things are changing, but um, also probably not. (laughs) Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah. (laughs) And, And not only that, but when you create female characters for network TV, they have to also kind of be infallible and beautiful and, you know, support the man in their life. And, um, you know, they can't be too anything, you know, mm. they really can't be edgy. If they are, you know, they definitely have to be hot. I just felt so limited year after year coming up with pilots, you know, for, for network TV. Listen, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity, but when I allowed myself to just go, well, what would this be? If I if it could be anything, because you know the show was born out of a of a sort of blind pitch, and the people I pitched it to eventually were like not interested. So it became whatever I wanted it to be, and I think I just wanted to create something that I wanted to watch, and create something that could be purely unfiltered in terms of the male gaze mm. and the expectation that, you know, men should want these women and, you know, I, you know, all the sort of stupid tropes that come with pitching shows on TV. And yeah. so it's like, it was, it certainly wasn't like, oh, I don't want men to watch the show. That would never be like, I just would never yeah. create from that place. It was just more like I wanted a show that, that women could feel at home with. In so much as the show reflects you, I want to talk about morality, you know, in so much as Mm -hmm. when a show or movie features a protagonist who does an immoral thing, there is a sort of belief that what happens to them in the end reflects the morality of the creator. You know, if they die at the end, that's saying one set of morals. If they turn over a new leaf, that's another. The Sopranos having cut before you know what happens is sort of another sense of morality. I think you understand what I'm saying. Yes. Um, You know, in so much as Death to Me is emotionally autobiographical, biographical without sort of being literally narratively autobiographical does the show represent your moral philosophy and so if so what is it (laughs) (laughs) um you know yes i mean i i i would say for the most part it it does reflect the way in which i look at the spectrum of right and wrong Mm -hmm. you know and you know look i would never condone obviously taking someone's life and, you know, I would never condone, you know, a lot of the things that these women do on the show in real life. But this show is not real life. In many ways, it's an allegory for real life. Mm-hmm. And it is an exploration of 
of many things, of grief, of loss, forgiveness, friendship, and what it means to be good or bad. And not intentionally, but almost subconsciously, it's me grappling with the good and bad in myself, in the people I love, in our leaders, and trying to find a place to come to a peace with that. And, you know, good people can do bad things. Bad people have some good in them. I don't believe in absolutes. And I think, you know, if we were all really honest with ourselves, we would admit that, you know, there are things about about each of us that are wonderful and reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is something I'm definitely exploring. I don't think that this show is like, my exact outlook on life. But I do always think about what we are saying and doing, you know, with each conversation the characters have, with each, you know, crazy plot twist. I would never represent something that I was absolutely against, you know? I just wouldn't tell that story. But there are definitely gray areas in which I'm not even sure, you know, how I feel about it. But I'm interested in talking about it. We are definitely exploring the the gray area, and it's a really like enjoyable thing to do. One thing I, I notice is the sort of how immorality in the show manifests in the female characters and the male characters, mm-hmm. um, where there does seem to be a bit of a difference, especially how immorality interacts with all the male characters and interchangeably. It feels like all the male characters that act immorality are connected to other male characters sort of allowing it or fostering it mm-hmm. you know was that your intention and without sort of spoiling too much the rest of this what happens in season two and without you giving away what happens in season three can you say how that reflects maybe what that might mean for the future of the show huh <laughs> i was trying to it's interesting like you know we are definitely telling you know a feminist tale on this show And, you know, at the same time, we're mindful, you know, that not every man is bad, that not every man is wholly immoral, Mm -hmm. you know, and look, Steve, who is very much essentially the villain of the show, he's, he's worse, you know, he's worse than all bad. He's part good, you know, like he isn't just, it's not that easy, you know, Um, and you know, obviously, like there, there is a another sort of villain that emerges um, in season two, and you know that's obviously meant to be a bit of an allegory too. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what I will say is that <laughs> I'm trying not to give anything away about season three, but yeah, I mean, like obviously, we are going to continue to explore those themes and. Mm. Um, at the same time, like definitely being conscious of the fact that like we always do want uh, characters to be redeemable in some way. The show, especially when it came out, was being labeled a traumedy uh, is the word that was used the most. And you have these characters that are sort of their friendship is real, but it is partly bonded by a mixture of sort of grief and trauma. You know, you're now working on the third season of the show during a period of national mass trauma, like mm-hmm. at least I've not seen in my, my lifetime. How has that, how has it affected how you think about trauma and how you think about the show? And I assume it, hypothetically the show will pick up from where it was. So it hypothetically is set in the 
recent past, but mm-hmm. how do you think it might manifest itself in the show? I think we cannot help as you know, human beings who are the writers of the show to reflect the feelings that we're having. You know, I mean, like it is whether or not we directly, you know, literally talk about what's happening, which we won't, you know, this isn't like a, Dead to Me is not like a rip from the headlines kind of show. It's not, it's not a, it's not even really a show that takes place right this moment. You know, it's an evergreen show. But we do, we do and can't help but talk about this collective feeling of, you know, for example, like this existential threat that we all feel, you know, like this invisible thing that, you know, (laughs) you just sort of like, you know, are constantly aware of that, that could come and get you at any moment. Um, and, you know, it is sort of those kind of feelings, you know, that, that we write from. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to have to write, you know, a show. Um, and I can't, and I'm, I'm, I'm honestly like just really glad that I don't have to be coming up with a new show right now because yeah. like it is impossible to know like what the climate is going to be a year from now, you know, like what are people going to want to see and need and, and, and what will be escapist then? So I, I, to me, like the, the, the best bet is to sort of continue doing what, what we do, which is always just right from a place of feeling. Um, and the fact that we are all in this collective feeling together means that we can't look away from it, that we do have to write from that place. Mm. Um, so hopefully, like, you know, when you do eventually see season three, whenever that is, you will feel some essence of what we're going through without having to relive it. Exactly. You, you mentioned recently that you, you decided you wanted the show to only be three seasons. So the next season will be the last. In earlier interviews, you mentioned, oh, I hope I can do this sort of forever. And it does reflect you, you, especially coming from a world of network TV, when you come up with a comedy, your goal is we're going to create a relationship that can be explored for the next 15 years if mm-hmm. we really nail it. You know, what does it say about a shift in you as a creator that you're able to say something like that, that you're able to make a decision of like, no, this story is a three season long story? It's so hard. It's so hard yeah. to just get a show on the air. It's so hard to even come up with a good idea and let alone find a place for it to live and better yet get an audience, you know, that that really likes it and you know, I mean all of this is once in a lifetime stuff. And so I think there was a part of me that was like why would I ever, you know, let this go. But you know, there's also a reality to um being a show on Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, from an outside studio, um, our, our studio is CBS studios. You know, that reality is that the show is not going to be on forever. They're not going to be, uh, motivated to pay whatever they're going to have to pay, you know, just to be sort of inside baseball a little bit. Yeah, they're yeah. just, there's just from a business sense, like it just isn't going to make sense for them to keep the show on the air forever. They don't own it. And so I always knew that the show was going to be, you know, a shorter run show. I didn't quite know how many seasons, but what happened was about halfway through season two, an idea came to me about how to end the series. And the idea launched off the finale of season two. Mm. And I am sort of just an instinctual writer. If I have a really strong feeling about something... I just try to follow it. 
because to me, it's coming from a real place. It's coming, it's, you know, it's coming from some something inspired. And I think often those ideas are better than anything that you're going to come up with if you just are sit- sitting there grinding out one idea after the next. And I really, it made, it made good sense to me. Like I was like, oh, that is, that's it. That's how the show, this is mm. how we wrap it up. And I, I, I don't think there's any, you know, uh, shame or, you know, it, it's not like having a show that is less seasons, you know, makes the show any less, you know, whatever than, you know, a seven season show. Because the truth is I look at a show like Fleabag, you know, it's a two, two season show. And I think, you know, I really admire the restraint, you know, yeah. I really, uh, the, the sort of self-control and, and the, the ability to say, you know what, like, that's, that was good. <laughs> that's, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to do better than that, you know? And, you know, I think Fleabag is a show that you will always look back on and go, that was a great show. And the truth is, I also think that some shows that have stayed on six or seven seasons, to me, as an audience member, kind of start to lose something. Are you going to list what shows those are? Absolutely not. No, because <laughs> sure. I have I? the utmost respect for anybody that can make anything. But, yeah. um, but that, and maybe that's just me as a, as an audience member. Maybe I get, you know, bored easily, but I do find that like, you know, after maybe about three, four seasons, I'm kind of sort of tapping out and yeah. I just didn't want that to happen with this show. And, and it is such a heightened reality on the show, you know, though the characters are grounded, this, the circumstances around them, you know, are so kind of insane that I, I, I didn't want it to strain credulity at a certain point. And I thought, you know, if I had to keep sort of this going, I didn't want to cheapen it, you know? Yeah. And so I thought, you know what, I think I can do one more season at this level and that's good enough. You know, having now worked on it for years and you're sort of thinking about its ending, have you figured out why you wanted to make this specific show? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I couldn't have told you in the moment I pitched it, but now I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I had things I had to work through as a person and I had feelings that I had nowhere to put. Mm-hmm. And I myself as a, as a woman every day in life, I'm not like the most emotive person. I am somebody who processes things through, you know, my work. Um, and I realized I had, I had to kind of get this out. I, I had experienced a lot of loss of different kinds and I had some stuff I had to reckon with, you know, mm-hmm. and um, some some dreams denied and some just feelings of, you know, not being able to say goodbye and things like that. And I, you know, I think that because I didn't create this show from a place of trying to sell something, I I, I really allowed myself to to maybe be an artist for the first time Mm -hmm. and really try to tap into something so personal to me that ultimately became quite universal. (laughs) So that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because this is a comedy show, it's a laughing round. Um, Typical lightning round rules apply. It's, much shorter, easier questions. Do you remember any of the jokes you wrote as a kid? Yes. Yes. I remember uh, pretty much my very first joke from stand-up, which was me talking about my embarrassing mother. 
my overbearing Jewish mother. I said, you know, my mother, my mother is so embarrassing. You know, some moms, they spit on a napkin and they wipe the dirt off your face. My mom just licks my face. She <laughs> takes good. my face and she licks it. Yeah, you know, not bad. <laughs> not bad. Um, <laughs> there's not many running gags in the show, but especially the second season is about orange wine. Uh-huh. Um which was very interesting to me. What's your problem with orange wine? Where did it come from? <laughs> so here's the weird thing about me. This is a confession. I don't even drink wine. Uh, I know. It's you so one weird. Of the most iconic wine drinking shows. I know. My writers do. You know, my friends do. My wife does, but I don't. And in the writer's room, Jesse Klein, one of our great writers brought up this moment where she tried orange wine and just didn't understand it and kind of thought it was terrible. And, um, you know, we all just thought that was just such a weird specific thing. And then a lot of us then went and tried it and just didn't, uh, didn't get it. And, and just felt like it was one of those things that this character, Karen played by Susie Nakamura, like we just thought that would be something she would be into because it was, you know, kind of a cool thing of the moment. Yes, I think it's 100% correct. Um, <laughs> I love that. Um, there are similarities, but I've never seen you talk about it. Have you seen Big Little Lies? Have you avoided it in case people would think, oh, like you don't accidentally want to take some part of it? Is is that on your radar? Yeah, it's on my radar. I watched the pilot, but I have not seen any other episodes. I'm pretty sure I had already written my own pilot. I think we were already in the writer's room when that show came out. So, you know, we were sort of already on our way and then Big Little Lies came out. I had writers who had watched it. So we knew, you know, mm-hmm. I, they were able to tell me like, oh, no, let's not do that. You know, they did that on on Big Little Lies. But um, yeah, so I, I actually only watched the pilot very much on purpose. It is clearly such a traumatic experience, but I imagine that there are a lot of people who listen to this show that watch all that as a kid. I know I did. Are there sketches and all that that you got on that you could point to? Um, there, there was one that, um, I was in, uh, uh, it was a, I played a, uh, very odd professional bowler who was returning a bowling ball at a customer service counter. Mm-hmm. And it, it was honestly like the, the most interesting thing about it now is that Paula Pell is in the sketch. Um, she's one of the adults, you know, on the show. Yeah. She lived in Orlando at the time. And, um, I think that might've been like my first sketch I got on, you know, I obviously didn't know who Paula was in 1995, but looking back, it's like, that's my proudest moment about that sketch. <laughs> that is, that's a third. I was thinking like on that show, you worked with two other sort of future sketch icons. Cause Neil Brennan worked on that show and Keenan. Neil, yeah, Neil and I shared an office. That's unbelievable. That, it's still, un- that's unbelievable. You, <laughs> Are you like, as much as you're comfortable saying, what is your relationship? Did you be like, oh, this guy's eventually going to create one of like the most iconic sketch shows ever? You know, to be totally honest, no, I, I, he was really young too. I mean, we were both, we were both kids really. And it was a weird environment and it was, um, you know, I think we were both just sort of trying to figure it out. And, you know, we, we weren't like, you know, the best of friends. I mean, yeah. I can't even imagine this, you know, he was like in his twenties and then all of a sudden he has to share an office with like basically a high schooler, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I kind of felt for him. No. So, cause I, I honestly like don't remember a lot from that time. I probably yeah. blocked it out. Sure. Um, but I'm no, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, he's really funny and, and we've, you know, run into each other a couple of times. We have some mutual friends and. 
you know, I, I, I think I like ended up at one of his birthday parties a few years ago and we were just sort of like marveling, you know, how yeah, crazy, like- how far, how far, you know, we've both sort of come since, uh, you know, 95. Yeah. Do you have a, a comedy crush, a crush on someone's comedy? It is a romantic. It is just a person whose comedy you've seen in the last however many years who are like, I'm in love with this comedy. I have many, but the, the first two that come to mind are uh, Jenny Slate and Nick Roll. Aw, past guests. Great answer. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate it. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can watch Dead to Me on Netflix. Follow Liz on social media at the Liz Feldman. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Scott Mishrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Be back next week with Felipe Esparza. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.